I am now going to try to deal with the subject, let go and let God, is this really right? And I would love to know, I really would love to know what you all have in your mind when you hear that phrase. I mean, what have you come to hear is the question I would like to ask. Let go and let God. Does anyone want to volunteer? Um, a, a, or several of you. Uh, what is it that you have in your minds when you hear that expression? Yes. It just confuses you. It just confuses <laughs> you. It doesn't ring a bell for anything. You haven't heard anything well, about I've heard it, but uh, I'm not sure that it's what sort of context did you hear it in? Um, well, I remember seeing it on little cards and people talking and saying, this is really good, this really helps me. Let go and let go, yes. You know, mm. I don't know why. Yes, yes ma'am. Well, I was going to tell you, to me it sounds like um, get rid of all your own ideas and just let yes. God do yes. with you as he sees them. Right. It's about to know what, you know, to hear God and be able to respond. Mm-hmm. That's my, right. my understanding of let go of right. yourself, as it were. Let go of yourself and let God take over. That's yes. my understanding. It might be wrong. Um, I think it's some, some, an overemphasis on being passive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... Anyone else want to volunteer anything? That's really how far you degree with it. So it's, it's true yeah. up to a point. Yes. Right. Well, that's that's what we're dealing with, and the the word uh, that I'd like to take out from what you've said so far is this word passivity. How much is the Christian life a passive experience, and how much is it not? Now, these words became very famous through the writing of Watchman Nee, who's a Chinese Christian, a very devout and godly man. And any criticism that I might make of him, you must remember, I'm making very carefully, not trying to uh, suggest that everything he wrote was unhelpful, etc., etc., not trying to imply that he wasn't a godly Christian, a brother in the Lord, etc., etc. In fact, as you know, when the communists came in to China, he was arrested and he was imprisoned, and uh, it is thought deprived even of a Bible, and for 20 years, to the end of his life, remained in prison. That's because of his faith. So I'm not speaking against him lightly. I do, however, feel that his emphasis, uh, in, in he was not unique in this, but on a passivity in relation to... Um, the Christian experience has not been helpful. Uh, The passage, the phrase, the the, uh, sentence rather, from Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now that was the uh, sentence, it's actually in Chinese, uh, uh, writing on the cover of his famous book, The Normal Christian Life. Now, having read that, I came across the problem, which I suppose all of you have felt to some degree, when you hear this sort of emphasis, uh, let go and let God and so on, is, well, well, what is the active side? And you read many, many passages, I've just chosen one, which speak 
on the other side. Here is 2 Peter chapter 1. I remember reading this in this context at a conference in the States once and a lady getting very, very angry with me. So I hope no one's going to get very angry with me for reading this. Okay. For this very reason, 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love and so on. I often refer to Romans, um, the, the letter where he turns after having given such a clear exposition of the gospel and then he lists all the things that we should be doing um, in chapter 12 from verse 9 onwards and there is something like 23 exhortations to do something in the space of about 10 verses from verse 9 onwards love must be sincere make it sincere hate what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You see, there's tremendous emphasis on activity. So, here is the tension. And what's right about this? What's wrong about it and what's right about it? Now, we mustn't think it's a new problem. I have here the introduction that was written by Bishop J.C. Ryle in the very end of the last century. And you may have noticed, those of you who were here last night, I touched on some of these renewal movements. And the first one I mentioned, you remember, was the Keswick movement. Now, the Keswick uh, conference today must not be confused with the Keswick movement. The Keswick movement, as it began, was a conference, of course, but it was dedicated to a particular emphasis in this area of spirituality, of the renewal of Christian experience. And there were some godly people connected with it. Amy Carmichael, for example, was the first missionary that was sent out by, donor, by uh, Keswick, she was uh, funded by them uh, to go out to India, and it was through her work that Donovore Fellowship began, and all of her writing, very, very wonderful things in her writing. I do commend them to you. They were perhaps one of the most instrumental factors in the Schaefer's beginning of Brie Fellowship. So you realize I'm not talking about this just to be critical. These things lie very, very close to us in the, in the history of Labrie. But in this, Bishop Ryle, it's the introduction to his book called Holiness. You can get it. I don't know if they've t changed the title, but there is a new edition. It's full of valuable stuff. But in the introduction, he raises, I'll just read, read uh, two sections. He raises a question about this passive emphasis. There are seven things that he draws attention to. Cautions for the times, he calls them. Now, I think those cautions apply just as much today. But this is the first one. I ask in the first place whether it is wise to speak of faith as the one thing needful and the only thing required, as many seem to do nowadays in handling the doctrine of sanctification. Is it wise to proclaim in so bald, naked, and unqualified a way as many do that the holiness of converted people is by faith only, and not at all by personal exertion. 
You see, the problem was ari uh, arising back then. Now, <clears throat> we have to be very careful, uh, very, very careful with the subject. It's a delicate one, because we mustn't imply in any way that faith is not important or not even central. It's just the question of how it is expressed. I mean, I love that verse in Galatians chapter 6. Only one thing counts. And that is faith. Faith expressing itself through love. That's Galatians chapter 6. Chapter 5, I think it is. Now, you can see how important it is for us to understand the, the, the relationship of faith in relation to passivity. It's not an easy one. And so, uh, that, that's the first thing. Is faith, are we sanctified simply by believing God? Or do we have to do things? Secondly, the very, very last comment he makes, the seventh of these cautions, he says, in the seventh and last place, is it wise to teach believers that they ought not to think so much of fighting and struggling against sin, but ought rather to yield themselves to God and be passive in the hands of God? Is this according to the proportion of God's word? I doubt it. And then he goes on to say, um, a holy violence a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling, are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. And then a bit about Pilgrim's Progress. If Christian and Pilgrim's Progress simply yielded themselves to God and never fought or struggled or wrestled, I have read the famous allegory in vain. So, you can see, it's not a new problem. There has been, all I'm saying in this introduction is, by, is to, to show that this has been a problem within our evangelical constituency for some time. The people have been given the impression that we, we are not to strive, we're not to have effort in the Christian life, but rather simply to yield or to have faith. Now, how did this approach arise? And I think it comes partly from two things. First of all, the explicit biblical teaching um, can easily be misunderstood if you do not remember the organizing principle that I was talking about last night. Remember I mentioned the organizing principle, the image of God, the restoration of man? And I made the point that nothing in our teaching about the Christian life can remove that emphasis that the Bible gives. And the end of which is that the image of God is being restored. So all these faculties are being used in the service of God, not being uh, rejected. But an expression like this, without me you can do nothing. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Now that's absolutely true. As the branch abides in the vine, so you must abide in me. And without that, there can be no fruit. You can't bring any of this uh, fruit of the Christian life. You cannot be sanctified apart from that. Now, you see, the analogy, as with all <coughs> illustrations, is valuable, 
But up to a point, you've got to be careful. You can't apply it. Like, for example, we are not a branch. I mean, in the literal sense. A branch has no choice. It's there. So there is a passivity in the branch. Do you see my point? There's a passivity in the branch just because it's made like that. But we are not made like that. We are not a branch. We are made in the image of God, we can choose. And so, our staying in the vine, if I can use that illustration, is by choice. So, I have to remember that the distinction here is that I have to be in this relationship with Christ, like the branch and the, uh, and the vine, like the branch and the vine. I have to be in this close relationship of dependence. If I'm not in that, then I can do nothing. But, People have taken phrases like that, expressions like that, without me you can do nothing, and they've taken it in this direction of there's nothing you can do. Total passivity. There's the other, another factor, I think, and that is our own experience. We go on as Christians, we hit problems, and you realize that um, it's much too big for you. And you can't cope. And so, just by sheer experience, you get driven back. And this is very good. This is exactly what God wants. Because the essence of our Christian life is to be in this close relationship, this love relationship with himself. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Will you commune with him on your bed in the night? You bring him all your agonies. You tell him your joys. You praise him and magnify his name, you see, and so on. This intimate relationship. But, but, as you go on and you are brought to the end of yourself, in quotes, it feels like that. It feels like, I can't do anything. I can't possibly change my nature. How can I? See? So, these, these two factors, the one, that there are these expressions in the Bible, which can be taken in this sort of very passive direction, crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, etc. Or secondly, my own experience of weakness in relation to the struggles that I'm running up against, both in myself and in the world, they drive me to this dependence on God. Well, I'm saying both of those, if we do not have a clear framework that guarantees that this is not going to be taken to mean something against the organizing principle, yeah. These can push us towards what I would call, I think this is the right term, in fact, theologically, a quietist, a quietist conclusion. Quietism is different from pietism. <laughs> the lady that uh, was uh, a great proponent of it is a lady in France, a Catholic, called Madame Guillon. You may have seen her, her book, G-U-Y-O-N. Again, not everything needs to be rejected. Not everything's been rejected in, in some of the most frightful theological uh, uh, authors. I won't mention names. You know, they, 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 have, they have sensitivity, and at some point they say things which are helpful to us. But Madame Guillon was a quietist. That is, the whole direction of her thinking was to say, listen, nothing must arise from within yourself. You see? It all has to come from God. And that was a great influence on Watchman Nee. There were two missionaries 
in China that were very influential in his life, and they gave him uh, Guillaume to read. And I think it's a very, very interesting part of the story. I think it's a very sad bit of the story uh, because I think it misled him when he was a young man and it led him towards a sort of an Eastern concept in relation to our being, which was very unhelpful. It has been very unhelpful, I think, in the Christian church because far from it leading us towards the recovery of the image of God, I would argue, or another very important step as we'll be looking at this afternoon, towards the development of a Christian mind to penetrate the culture, to take on the philosophy, to take on the, uh, the false ideas that uh, have, have controlled our, our culture and so on increasingly. Far from that, there's been this thing, oh, my mind's not anything. I, I mean, I, you know, I, my mind isn't to be used. I have some quotations which I'll read to you. <clears throat> he divided... I'm now going to say just a little bit about what you need. Please remember what I've said at the beginning, that uh, there are very, very helpful things in him. I think he, what so many of us are attracted by in his writing is the fact that he, he centers, he focuses our attention on the two most critical things in the Christian life. The one is this thing of faith, the attitude of faith. Like Paul says, only one thing counts, faith. Yeah. And he majors on that. Other thing is death, faith, and death, dying to yourself, really being yielded up to God, like I was trying to express last night. You know, present your body a living sacrifice, and He majors on. He doesn't let you off the hook. Bores in on that. He says, "Now listen, is this a reality in your life, or are you wanting to just go your own life, your own way?" Are you really willing to go God's way? And so, because this is a struggle for us as sinners, even though we love God, it's not easy, we sense now he's touching reality. He's got his finger on it, okay? And so there's something here for us. Now, I believe it was set in the wrong context. That's what I want to try to explain. So he was on the right track, in the wrong ball game, as the Americans say. And that was because he used the tripartite view of man in a very unbiblical way. Now, the tripartite view says that we have spirit and soul and body. He actually has, has uh, concentric circles. In the middle, the little one, the spirit. The next one, the soul. Then the next one, the body. Now, I don't believe that to be the biblical view myself. A friend of mine, a colleague at Labrie, just handed me the other day an exhaustive word study that he made of this in the Greek and in the Hebrew, uh, pneuma, psuche, etc. And it is not possible, I believe, I know I'm saying this categorically, but it is not possible, I believe, to really fix and make it work that the Bible is speaking specifically about a sort of an anatomical or psychological system here that is watertight, you know, because it uses all sorts of expressions. So, Luke 10, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. doesn't even say the Spirit. So what happened to the Spirit? Did it just fall away? No. You see, I'm just making the point. It's not watertight. He makes it watertight. There's another thing just coming up, incidentally, which is not to be confused with it, but also uses this tripartite view, and that's called theonomy. Uh, not theonomy. Um, theotherapy 
involving two, two Puerto Ricans. Uh, dear brothers in the Lord, we're going to meet them soon. They're coming to give a, a lecture at our place. But they, they also have this view. Now, I'm saying it has existed in the church's history. It's not wrong necessarily. It's not a heresy. Okay? But the way Watchman Nee used it was very, very slippery. I'll tell you, show you how he did it. There's the Spirit. And only the Spirit has communion with God. Only the Spirit has communion with God. Your soul comprises your mind, your emotions, and your will. Your mind, your emotions, and your will. And then, of course, you have your body. Now, he says the problem is this. You get converted, and instead of letting your spirit, as it were, lead the way, your soul continues to operate and to dominate in the Christian life and even suppress the spirit, not let the spirit have its proper place. And so he has this book called The Release of the Spirit, the one I think which is the most confusing. The release, Because what he says is the way forward. Here comes the passivity, you see is that this soul has to die. The soul has to die. It has to be put to death. Let me read you some, some, some uh, quotes here. I call it a psychological asceticism. You know the old ascetics, ascetics, A-S-C, in the, in the medieval period, they, they, they would whip their backs, you know, starve themselves for the body, you know, crush the body. I see, I'm sorry if it sounds harsh, but I see me as doing a, a similar thing only in relation to the, the, the sort of psychology of our, of our experience, namely the soul, the mind, and, uh, the, and the, the, uh, the mind, the emotions, and the will. So he says this. This is uh, volume 1, page 31 of The Spiritual Man. Volume 1, page 31. It is imperative that a believer know he has a spirit, since every communication of God with man occurs there. If the believer does not discern his own spirit, he invariably is ignorant of how to commune with God in the spirit. Now note this sentence. He easily substitutes the thoughts or emotions of the soul for the works of the Spirit. Thus he confines himself to the outer realm, unable ever to reach the Spirit realm. Now you see, that's, that's not biblical. Because how do we have a relationship with God? Jesus tells us, you, you love the Lord your God with your mind. You don't have to say no to your mind somehow as if your mind shouldn't be thinking thoughts, or your will choosing things, or your emotions <coughs> feeling things. Here's another one. Um, speaking of the three functions of the spirit, now, that's the inner one, conscience, intuition, and he calls it communion, but it's kind of like worship, you know, the actual relationship with God, the communion with God. Speaking of this last, of communion, he says, Communion is worshipping God. The organs of the soul, 
mind, will, emotion, are incompetent to worship God. God is not apprehended by our thoughts, feelings, or intentions, for He can only be known directly in our spirits. So you see, the end product of this is that it makes you feel sort of uncomfortable about anything that comes from yourself. So, so listen to this, this uh, sentence. God is the only originator. This is page 219 from Normal Christian Life, if you're taking notes. 219. God is the only originator in the universe. Anything that you plan and set on foot has its origin in the flesh, and it will never reach the realm of the Spirit, however earnestly you seek God's blessing on it. Now you see, I feel what's, what's happening here is that there's this impression given, even though it may not have been intended to do this, that really there's something wrong with the way you are as a person, with your mind, your emotions, the world. Now the biblical view is, like I said last night, is that everything's wrong with us. Our body's wrong, it's going to die, uh, all the faculties are distorted, you know, like I said, but God doesn't junk them. His purpose is to purify them. And the problem with what many I feel, with all this passive uh, emphasis, is that it seems to make you feel like nothing should arise from yourself. Do you see? That there's something somehow wrong with your mind. Now, a, a colleague of his, and sort of disciple, Witness Lee, took it later when he went to California. He, he went west when uh, Watchman went back to, to, the, to face the communists. Witness Lee went to California, and he is, I would say, if he's not a heretic, he's very close to being a heretic. And he took it in the direction like this, that because your mind is not able to commune with God, you see, I don't know what they make of the sentence, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you know, Romans 12. Don't know what they make of that. But he took it in the direction like this, and it's really, I've met people who've been to these meetings in California, that the way you communion with God is with your spirit, you see, not with your mind. So you take the scripture and um, um, you, you take a phrase out of the scripture and you shout it. Now, why do you shout it? I mean, why don't you just read it? Well, you shout it because you're not trying to understand it. It's kind of like taking drugs. I'm being absolutely serious. Or going along to a rock concert. You watch people going to a rock concert, man, and they t- turn up the volume to blow their minds, you see. You said you'll have an experience independently of your mind. That cannot be biblical. You see. So anyway, I, I, I just mentioned that because I thought it was worth going into a little bit of detail there because you won't pick this up in the commonly read books of Watchman Nee, Normal Christian Life, etc. It's only if you go back to his, the only book that he ever really wrote, which was The Spiritual Man, three volumes, it's the only book he wrote, that you pick up his sort of theology. And that's what I've tried to express. Now, the problem is that there's such good stuff in it that you can read it, and if you're reading it in, in the right context, then it can bless you. But, if one hasn't got a clear picture, as I, as I was trying to draw last night, the organizing principle, what can happen is that this other element seeps through. And I had a teacher once who had been reading him say to me, that she try to be up there in front of the class and not be there. Because it was no longer her, it was Christ dwelling in her. You see? Now that's a f- complete mis- 
understanding of Galatians chapter 2. D- just a second, can, can you hang on? Because I just make sure I've got all that I want to say. So, my basic point is that Scripture never overrides our humanity. We are always responsible, so we always have to choose, we have to make an effort, there's nothing wrong with that. We have to take courage in the battle, and so on. The complete dependence principle, this emphasis, like the branch and the vine, without me you can do nothing, etc. This comes from two factors. The one is that in relation to justification, that's how I become a Christian, only Christ can save me. Salvation is a free gift. So Schaefer, my father-in-law, had, a, had this lovely expression which he uses in the film. If you see it, I do urge you to get it, whatever happened to the human race. And uh, he actually had cancer. It was very, very moving. We didn't know it at the time. But this, this shot where he's explaining the gospel and he climbs up the hill and he's panting you know, out of the exertion. He didn't know he had cancer. He had about two weeks to live unless he'd got to the doctors in time. But he's holding up his hands, he says. You hold up the empty hands, the empty hands of faith. Salvation is by grace plus nothing. Plus nothing. So, of course, this is a picture of dependence, isn't it? Now, is it, is it, listen carefully, is it total passivity? No. Where are the hands coming from? I have to lift the empty hands, you see. God never deals with me like a stick in a stone. He said, hey, you over there, Psh, bang, got it, you see. I just kick that stone and there it rolls. No, he calls to me, please come. I'm knocking at the door. Does anyone hear my voice? Let him open the side, I became a Christian. Let him open the door and I will sup with him and he with me. Gorgeous, Re- Revelation chapter 3. Now, you see, there's not a total passivity. It's a total dependence, you know, in the sense that my salvation is coming entirely from God. I'm not manufacturing it. He is the motivator, as it were, and I am the, the responder. And hence, I call this the female principle in salvation. Yeah, that we, and that's why the Bible talks about this. All oh, male and female is the bride of Christ. Because if he didn't come to save us, we wouldn't be saved dead in trespasses and sins. Now, the second thing is sanctification. You want to change it? The second thing is sanctification. What happens in sanctification? The power to change me, as I said last night, is not from me, but from Him. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. The power of his resurrection. That's the constant theme of the New Testament is that it's got to be his work in me if I am to be changed. Now, is that total passivity? Like I said earlier? No, no. It's total dependence. If I try to go away from Christ, if I think I can live without him, without hiding his word in my heart, without... um, holding on to these promises uh, without trusting him uh, as the one who's going to deliver me the very present help in trouble and so on no 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 salvation no sanctification but is it total passivity 
No. Once again, just like the hands have to be held up, I have to come to him as the bride. And my father-in-law, in his book, True Spirituality, uses a wonderful picture here of Mary, and the archangel Gabriel comes and says, Mary, you're going to have this child. And uh, Dr. Schaefer makes the point, she said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, okay, that's fine by me. <coughs> Even though it wasn't very fine, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, really, it, it was going to involve her in terrible pain. And the sword shall pierce your heart also. Great sorrow involved. And the believer has to be willing for that, you know, the experience of yieldedness as it's used. But in the process, I am not giving up my humanity. So I present my whole self. That's why Paul says it's lovely. He doesn't say present your soul. He doesn't say present your spirit. He says to encompass the whole thing. Present your body, man, the whole lot. Even if it means becoming a physical sacrifice. And he used that picture of himself. He said, I am on the point of dying, of being poured like a, what's the expression he uses? A libation. What's the other one? A drink offering. Exactly. That, that means, you know, just completely burned up, gone for your faith. Okay, I'm drawing to close so we can, we can discuss it. So, my need to trust remains. My need to obey remains. So, as I read the New Testament, I don't have a problem with all the emphasis upon active choice, active uh, application. Make every effort. doesn't f- floor me. My, my, my uh, personality is not overridden. I can make choices. I have to think about what am I going to do for my children. They have these and these needs. What's best for them? What should we do on our day off? Etc. Etc. Which church shall I go to? God doesn't wipe me out. Okay? There's my personality, my humanity, being uh, operative in that whole thing. I need to trust and I need to obey. Everything in this thing turns on the issue of relationship. I am in a relationship with God, and in that relationship, I am the dependent one, the bride. That's what all this talk about uh, the inability is about in the New Testament. When it speaks of not being able to do these things, or our feeling we can't do these things, it's because in the realm of salvation, salvation comes only from the Lord, and we enjoy that in our relationship with him. And that's the only thing. Okay, I've gone on longer than I anticipated, but um, we were dealing with some fairly technical and subtle things, and I hope now we can go on and anything that's confusing to you, we can talk, talk through. Anyone want to lead off? Yes? Can I just ask them? It strikes me that maybe um, how I think, not totally, but in terms of emphasis, is to do mm. with my experience. You know, we go over individual experiences that we maybe we think in a certain way because of our experience. Mm. Um, and just as can you separate Bonhoeffer from his prison? Can you separate Watchman Nee from his actual persecution or whatever? I mean, what I mean is, does he think like that because of his experience? No, no, no. Historically, he wrote these when he was just newly a Christian. 
So the spiritual man was written when he was in his 20s. And uh, he, he, never, he never wrote anything else. The only thing that came out, the things that came out afterwards were put together from lectures he'd given, uh, Bible studies, things he'd written in, in uh, magazines, and so on. And uh, so that was the step one. His imprisonment came when he was, I think, about 50. <coughs> John? Might I add to it that, did. because it's right on this point, I think I'm probably the only person who actually ever met Watchman Lee in the mm. room, anybody else, and who has met Witness Lee as well. Have you? Um, what uh, Rand said about Witness Lee is absolutely true. I've been in one of these weird meetings. It, mm. is, it is quite incredible. And I remember him saying that day, I wrote it down so I wouldn't be mistaken, uh, you can learn more from the spirit than you can from the word, which is, mm. I think, a fundamental heresy. Uh, mm. We learn only through the word. The spirit only works through the word. As far as Watchman Nee was concerned, um, everything that Randall has said, I, I absolutely agreed with. But there is a background mm. beyond the bit that you gave. Uh, Watchman Nee's conversion was through Western missionaries. But much of what he subsequently thought, and wrote, and preached uh, grew out of a reaction mm. against the missionary scene. Mm. And I think that reaction was peculiarly Chinese because I think, I'm in danger of race relations act here, but I think that the, uh, the Chinese Christians still have a nationalistic streak about them. Mm. And certainly, Watchman Nee had an anti-missionary mm -hmm. streak about him. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he looked upon the missionaries with their programs and their buildings and their possibly condescending attitude and said, this we don't need. The Spirit will teach us independent of the missionaries. And there was, in that sense, an explanation of why mm. he went the way he did, because he was reacting against an organized missionary scene or environment uh, out of which he came and mm -hmm. what he's associated with is of course the foundation of what we would now think of as house churches I mean, mm -hmm. nobody had ever used the expression in those days um, his, his, his uh, little flock grew yeah. through uh, in effect a house church movement and so his reaction against the official church was very much the reaction of house churches against the official church in mm -hmm. Britain in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. So there's all that in the background. Plus the other thing which you've just mentioned, nothing that we know about Watchman Nee's uh, writings and the normal Christian life uh, was actually composed by him. Mm -hmm. Normal Christian life was put together by a good friend of mine who's a doctor in London, uh, who's a very intelligent man. I can remember Watchman Nee preaching some of the normal Christian life in our mm -hmm. church in London. And uh, so it's a, it's a group of sermons. And once he became famous, and the same thing apply, I think, to your mm -hmm. father-in-law, once he became famous, people would publish anything right. that had his name on it. If he wrote his name on a piece of toilet paper, there'd be a publisher yeah. right. queuing up to uh, get the rights on it. So you've got a huge literature of Watchmen now, most of it, if not all, by translation, out mm -hmm. of Chinese, and uh, all of it seized upon by publishers and editors mm -hmm. Who, who, who want to use his name. So there are all sorts of explanatory factors in there. What Reynolds has said, I, I personally absolutely agree with. Thank you, John. It's very helpful. Yes? Can you pick up, you've introduced the, the picture of um, part of the teaching being a reaction against um, a perceived oppression mm -hmm. from the mission. Do you think 
that that um, relationship um, might explain some of the ways in which this theology is attractive, that where you have um, Christians who feel either oppressed or put down by mm -hmm. what they see as an intellectually more competent group mm -hmm. or an institutional church, unable to establish their own self-worth amidst that, there's a shortcut yeah. to having um, a status by saying, well, we're not interested in that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, you that, that yeah, I, I think actually um, it explains part of the, the charismatic movement that I feel that there's a, a feeling of um, just a longing for some sort of shortcut that would, would enable us to have, have a power independently of all this, you know, going through the academic study and the tradition of the church and the way the churches have been, have been uh, in existence. And I'm, I'm not making that statement as if to suggest that all of the charismatic movement is involved. I think there's just an element of it which was like that namely, sort of reactionary, uh, following on from what you said, wanting to sort of get a shortcut and get the spirit quick, sort of idea, uh, to enable them to, to be more effective. Now, I don't think you can bypass the mind in the same way that I said last night that the pietists in the 19th century were a very powerful group initially it quickly ran out in terms of uh, energies, uh, spiritual energy. And I think the same is going to be true of the others, that the, the charismatic movement will not have within it the energy to sustain itself very much, for much, very much longer. It's going to look to other things to sort of buttress it, and I think that's actually happening. Partly good, partly bad. Yes? If you... Um, ha I mean, I hope I'm understanding this correctly. If you have um, somebody or being, people, who are not, because of damage to their mind, cannot understand mm -hmm. God in the way that we might, and, and through you said, through the tradition of the church and the tradition <coughs> and so on, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. That surely cannot um, exclude them from knowing God. No, absolutely so not. Yeah. Is, in that sense, I mean, the knowing God through the Spirit would apply to his creatures who, from what we've heard this morning, are damaged mm. because of the fall. By damage, do you mean real real physical damage? Yeah, you know, like, yeah, of yes, course. Yes, I'm talking about, say, like yeah. the Down syndrome child. And right, of course. Those who, who Absolutely. Brain, who, who really... Um, so I was talking to my class, actually, about this, about the ability to know God. And one girl, I thought she put it very well, she said... Well, you know, but surely God would, there wouldn't be any a, a person created who didn't have the possibility of knowing him. Mm. You I see, ironically, it, it may be in the, the opposite way around. We look on these people, particularly uh, Down syndrome, as, as deficient. Mm -hmm. Now, in one sense, they are. Undoubtedly, you know, they are not able to function in all the ways that, uh, that others can, just like a person who's Who's, who's born with spider bifida, perhaps, mm -hmm. cannot run. In the same way, there are limitations. One's not trying to deny that. Okay. But possibly, they have something which we do not have in terms of spiritual perception. 
You know, like children sometimes strike you like this. It's one of the things that I find difficult in some churches, attitude to children is if they don't know God until they get to be 15. This is ridiculous. A child knows God, perhaps better. I mean, some of the most moving prayers I've ever heard in my life have been my children's prayers at the age of five or six. And Jesus said, suffer the children to come. So knowledge, I'm just making, I'm, I'm endorsing what you're saying. Knowledge is not to be seen when we talk about the importance of the mind as if you've got to get a PhD <laughs> before you know God. But, but having said that, then, we mustn't miss the fact that the norm, the, 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 the general principle is, like John was saying, that the way God speaks to us is through his word. Now, you can't understand his word unless you read it. Of course, that means you've got to have two eyes to read it. Unless you're blind and you can read by braille, if you're deaf, uh, blind, you know, you, you can hear it in, in some, some way. Um, but clearly, the mind is the organ that God has given us to understand these things, not independently of all the rest. So it's, it's, it's combined with other things. I will say more about this this afternoon. Where are we going now? Yes. Have you said anything? Yeah, no, you haven't. No, you this is, might be a different issue, but yeah. on, on the issue of salvation, is, do you think that then is like a one-time thing? So that time that person yes. accepts grace, are they then a Christian and always a Christian? Mm. Or is it possible for someone, as it were, not to be a, a Christian? Now, I think the Bible, this is where we might differ. You know, this is where we have to respect each other in our differences. Um, but I feel personally that the Bible says very clearly, very, very strongly, very emphatic, it uses absolutist language, that if a person is really born again of the Spirit, if a person is really born again of the Spirit, I'm, I'm phrasing it very carefully, that person cannot be lost. That person is already in the kingdom, his name is in the book of life, etc., etc. But that's not the end of the story. The Bible also then talks phenomenologically. That means it looks at the church, just like we have to look at the church. And we look at the church and we see some people dropping out. You know? And that happened to Paul. And the best text I know to help one in this discussion is two people that he knew called Hymenetus and Philetus. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Hymenetus and Philetus have swerved from the truth, he says. They're denying the resurrection. Now, how does Paul deal with that? And he, you have a masterly treatment of this. And he says, But God's firm foundation stands, having this seal. And he gives you two answers from Scripture. Both of them are quotations. The Lord knows those who are his. I don't know. I'm not God. He knows. The Lord knows those who are his. And though they're in his hand, and no one will be able to pluck them out of his father's hand. Okay, that's what Jesus said. On the other hand, he says, and now's the second quote, let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if you say you are his, depart from iniquity. So if, if, a, if a person is, is in the situation, and let's not speak about others, let's not speak about others, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we have this exhortation not to think we aren't 
God's children. If we believed in him, we are his children, we can count on that. That shouldn't make us think, oh, well then, okay, wrap it all up, do what I like. No, no, we make every effort to add to faith virtue, to virtue godliness, godliness, brotherly kind. For if these things are in you, you will never fall. Anyone else to know one over here? Yeah, it's <coughs> a couple of things. We, uh, <coughs> tripartite view. Yes. Um, that's that's um, really like to know uh, whether you accept that. No, I don't. Or, or what you put in its place. And the other thing is mm. uh, about speaking in tongues, mm. which um, uh, recently I've heard taught that God has given us the gift of speaking in tongues in a sense to. Uh, humble us and, and that we don't get puffed up in our minds mm. so that we don't understand what we're saying and our communication with God um, doesn't get blocked by our, our own sort of human pride and our own intellect and things like mm. that. Mm. A, a communication which isn't sort of blocked by, by that. Yeah, I'll try to give it a, a brief, brief response because I'm sure we're all getting tired. Um, the, the first is on the tripartite thing um, I feel what the Bible gives us is a number of ways that it talks about our being I, you know, I use those rectangles and all these things it's kind of like that there's a whole range of ways in which the Bible uses and it's not neat and tidy um, and the picture the Bible gives is of a unity so rather so you've got, you've got t- two traditional views one is the uh, tri- um, tripartite. The other is the bipartite. That is that there are two: soul and spirit. And and the uh, sorry, spirit, soul, hyphened, and then body. That's the two. So you have spirit, soul, body, spirit, soul, body. That's the two. And then the third, it seems to me, is the one which is really biblical, and that's the one which is prevailing amongst many evangelical scholars today and that is a unitive view that is that it's all one so in the end what the Bible is is speaking of is a person that is made in the image of God that comprises all these different faculties including the body and all of it's going to be saved at the end so the final emphasis is on the unity of the whole including the body rather than on bits and pieces now you have to speak about the bits and pieces just because, you know, like a person dies in the body. So what happens? Do they end? And Paul says, no, for me to die is gain because then I'm going to go to be with the Lord. Well, who's going to go to be with the Lord? The body's going to go to be with the Lord? No. The body is there waiting for the resurrection. So don't panic. You know, those who've died in the Lord, they're just asleep. They're waiting for the resurrection, the resurrection of the body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So comfort one another with these words. So there is a, a way in which you, you can speak of the differences of these different aspects. You must. The mind is not the same thing as the emotions and so on. But we mustn't then divide them. Can you have emotions without a mind? Can, can you have choice? Can you have the will without a mind? And you see? And so on. So the unitive view is the way I would put it, is, is the thing to, to go for. 
as against trying to divide it all up. Because you see, I think what's happened, and it's been very powerful, Washburnese influence has come through some of the charismatic churches, and it comes in, and you've got to think about it, because it, it's maybe okay, but it's maybe not okay. You've got to be careful. Any of this emphasis that your mind is not, not any good and so on, you've got to watch out for it. That brings me to the second thing. Clearly there's a danger in the mind. Paul talks about that in Corinthians. You Corinthians, he says you're puffed up. Knowledge puffs up. He says that, doesn't he? But he also says, um, or rather it's James, the root of all evil is, is money, the love of money, love of riches. Now, does that mean we could do without money? No, we don't. Uh, just as all of our, our emotion, you know, our appetites, they, they are sinful, but we don't do junk them. They're wonderful. Eating foods, marvelous thing. <laughs> and so on. And so we don't junk them because they've been distorted, like aesthetics. You can see some of the ugliest things in aesthetics. I mean, I personally think that El Greco is a very, very famous, uh, one of the greatest artists. But if you asked what was the most unreformation painting that you could find, you'd go to El Greco. And you just feel the difference. If you go and look at El Greco, you understand the Counter-Reformation. You go and look at uh, Rembrandt, you understand the Reformation. Totally different. The one breathing death, in my view, the other breathing life. So, aesthetics is a wonderful thing. It's a gift of God. But it's not necessarily right. So you don't junk it. So the mind can get puffed up. Yes, knowledge puffs up. I mean, it's a very great danger to have a humble mind, a uh, problem to have a humble mind. But so is it for a rich man not to get puffed up by his riches. And so is it for a, a very able musician to get puffed up with their music. Well, then you don't junk music, you don't junk money, you don't, you see. So I think this teaching about the speaking in tongues presented like that is a misapplication of the thing. We just have to say quite simply, don't get proud. The thing about speaking in tongues is a totally different issue. We, we may be given these gifts because God chooses to give them to us. That's the only reason. They're, they're, they're gifts. They're not a necessity. They're gifts. There's one necessity. That's fruit. We are all to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And I will show you a more excellent way that you should love each other. That's the fruit. Okay. But the gifts are distributed as God pleases. And whether he's distributing all the gifts right now, I'm not quite sure, to tell you quite frankly. I think it's a very, very moot point, as my dear friend Jim Packer has pointed out so well in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. I do recommend it to you. It's the, perhaps the best, in the first hundred pages, the best treatment of spiritual experience in terms of the understanding of how the Holy Spirit, how we are to relate to the Holy Spirit. First hundred pages. And then the other is somewhat polemical. You know, he's talking about the charismatic movement, so he gives you historical perspective, and then he comes up to the present. So, I don't know if that's helpful. I just say, be careful. 
clear. Just keep this thing about the tone. With my great sadness, if I could just say this in relation to that, because it has been one of the elements that has kept us from the concentration on the central thing. And maybe we could leave this, leave with this. The central thing must be the central thing of the Word of God. What is that? It's not tongues. It's not the gifts. The central thing is the issue of truth, the issue of truth, which has as its focus the person of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and life. Now, when Jesus said that, he didn't mean, I am the way, the truth, and life, and nothing in the Old Testament was true, and nothing else in the New Testament is going to be true. It's quite the contrary. He submitted himself to this because it's his book. It's his book. And he submitted himself to because that is to be the criteria. So, by the truth, I mean something which is very, very critical for us to understand because our culture doesn't accept the idea of truth, of anything being really true. So we've got to speak of that. That's the central thing. Is this really true or not? Otherwise, let's forget it. That's the first issue. I don't hear people speaking about this in the churches very much. They're either talking about experiences or social issues. And the issue of truth per se is not being dealt with adequately. We aren't helping our youngsters in our homes as Christians in the churches to deal with this issue. They go to, they go to school and they hear all this, this other kind of a teaching. Are we preparing them for that? So they don't just go naked to hear postmodernism being taught in geography <coughs> faculty at Cambridge University? And, and humanism and psychology and sociology and all this, what are they going to say? And they write their essays. Who's preparing them for this? That's the central issue. That and the Holy Spirit focuses attention upon Jesus. That's the, one that, the thing that the Holy Spirit is concerned for. And this whole thing of, uh, you know, whether you speak in tongues and all this kind of thing, in, in a way, it's a very small thing. Very small thing, historically. Very small thing. Let's get it like that and keep it like that.